Icon Church, back in 2011, uh, I moved from the Chicagoland area to plant a church in Atlanta. I had been brought down by a church that was known for its discipleship program and its church planting, and I uh, had come down hoping to plant a church. And so we spent time, my family and I, learning Atlanta, its history. I spent time studying so many different approaches to church planting, raising money, building up a leadership team, getting our ministry vision and our values written. And then in September of 2014, we launched our first worship service. And the question then is the same question we face right now. How should we determine the direction of ICON? How do you find out what the church should look like? As we close out this series on why church, we've talked about what the purpose of the church is, why we should care about the church, how we deal with issues related to ways in which we've been hurt by the church. And so given all of that, we still have to answer the question, so what should we be? How should we look? What is ICON's mission? And much like I went through then, trying to figure out how the church should look like, uh, involved many church planting books. There are seminary courses that would tell you to start your church the way you would start a business. Oftentimes people are told, figure out who your customers are, figure out what their needs are, then customize your messages and your services accordingly. Start with your constituents, figure out what they require, and then work to meet those. But listen, that is not the way God's church is built. God's church is not contingent upon people's requirements. It is always predicated on God's requirement. So we never start with asking, what do the people want? The question has to be, what does God require of us as a church? And I believe God answers this question in a few places in scripture, but one of the most famous is in the text that I want us to look at today. It's a text that we love to go through at least once a year, typically when we're talking about what our values are as a church. And so I would ask for you to spend some time looking through and think, matter of fact, before even that, I want you to spend some time thinking through what does God require of you? What does God require of you? What does God require of those who claim to follow Jesus? What does God say about how he, what he expects from people who claim to follow him, specifically as a church. Now, look, we can have any number of ideas around what God says he wants from a church, right? We can have a lot of things that we uh, believe are subjectively true that are not bad. God wants us to love one another, which is true, very objectively. God, it may be something like God wants us to be in this particular region, or God wants church to look this uh, specific way, or God wants worship to sound, these, uh, sound like this or that. But honestly, where in scripture can we point to, to find out what God specifically requires of us? As we come uh, into this new phase of the pandemic, hopefully moving into an endemic, and we're looking at what our church will look like, we have to return back, not to just the, the issues of the day, but what the objective principles are of God's heart. What does God require of us? Micah 6.8 answers that question in this way. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this text, widely celebrated, is often misunderstood if you don't consider its context. So, as often is the case, we as American Western Christians, we look at uh, this Middle Eastern document with Western eyes. And sadly, we get stuck viewing the scriptures through this hermeneutic of privilege. And when we do this, we take the scriptures out of their historical context. So, let's put this passage in context for a moment. First of all, we're looking at Micah. Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets. Now, you might think minor prophets must, must mean they are less important uh, or less significant. That is not at all what minor means here. It simply means they are the short-winded prophets, unlike myself. Uh, these are very short. All 12 of them could fit on one scroll if you wanted to. Micah, the author of this book, uh, was the contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah and Amos. And those three prophets all said similar things. Micah wasn't what you would call an end-time preacher. Micah was more of an end-of-the-good-times preacher. Micah was preaching a message that his nation would eventually fall apart. Or he was actually preaching a message right before the nation would fall apart. Keep in mind, what had happened up to this point? Israel had had 40 years of peace and prosperity. Now, if you're not, if you miss this, uh, you'll, you'll overlook something uh, that we are all prone to fall into. When we are in a place of peace or prosperity, when you are in a place where things are going well, that is when you are most prone to forget, ignore, and drift away from who God is. And that is often the case for all of us. The times that we drift are oftentimes when we are in the peaceful, prosperous places. And this is where our own biases can cause us to miss the real point in this text. Because oftentimes we want to read ourselves as the good guy in the story, the protagonist. We all want to see ourselves as the Micah in this story, right? We tell the truth regardless of the consequences. We, the, these, those stubborn people wouldn't listen. Shame on them. But the truth of the matter is that we should identify with the antagonists in this story. God's people, Israel, they were supposed to serve the same function uh, that the church is supposed to serve today. They were supposed to give a picture of who God is. One author puts it this way. God desires that we be like living signs of the kingdom to provide visual aids of what life will look like one day when the kingdom is here fully. We will not bring the kingdom or build the kingdom, but our privilege is to live out previews of coming attractions, revealing what this kingdom will look like. Now, if you were with us years ago, there were times, there was a time when we met in a movie theater. I'll never forget one time preaching at the very end of the sermon, uh, the, the, uh, the oncoming uh, movie trailers or movie trailers for a certain movie were playing right behind me. And it was kind of a funny situation, but it was an interesting point that we've returned back to many times. Likely before you see a movie, you saw a trailer for it, right? You saw there was something about the trailer, some attribute within the trailer, either an actor or an idea or a theme or a principle that commended itself to you to the extent that you wanted to patronize 
the movie. There was something about that movie, that 30 to 45 seconds, maybe minute long trailer of a two to two and a half hour movie that made you go, whatever that is, I want to, I want more of it. Listen, that's the role of the church. We are supposed to be a trailer for what is coming. We're supposed to be a foretaste of the main attraction. Always. So go back to Micah. God's people were failing in that task. And so God indicted them in Micah 6. He caused them out for their failure to do three things. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. So, interestingly, uh, this is always the theme that God expects of his people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so when we, when we go back to us, when we drill down and say, okay, what now? Who are we as Icon Community Church? Who are we? What do we want to be? Well, we want to make sure that we are upholding and affirming what God requires of us, that we do justice or justly, that we love kindness, and, the, and that we walk humbly with God. These three, these three things comprise what God suggests. No. You see that? It, it is not something he suggests. It's, is it something that comprises what he prefers? No. These three things comprise what God requires. These are three concomitants that should be true of any church. And this is what it means to be a church that God requires. And this is what we want it to mean to be a part of ICON. So let's talk about them. Do justice. Hard word, very politically charged word. What in the world does it mean? What does it mean to do justice or to act justly? <clears throat> Many times, depending on the Christian circle or sect of which we are a part, we can often think that to embrace this word, number one, many folks will say, oh no, I heard the word justice, and now we're going into a cesspool of godless liberalism. Sadly, this type of thinking uh, belies our, our biblical ignorance because God's view of justice is very different from ours. Many think justice means punishment for wrongdoing. If a criminal is caught and pays the price, then justice has occurred, right? Law and order, doom, doom, that must equal justice. But this is inaccurate. If this is what we think, when we think about justice, we really don't have the heart of God. How do we know this? Well, if you look at the word used for justice here in the Hebrew, it's the word mishpat. This word is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. And its basic meaning is very simple. To treat people equitably. To ensure that life is being made right. To ensure that life is lived the way it was designed to be lived. Now, this includes being punished for sure. People should all receive the same punishment when the same crimes are committed. So when people commit the same crimes, but receive far less or far more severe punishments, is this justice? Should it upset us? Yes. The word in, uh, that, that's used in Deuteronomy 18 when talking about the priests of the tabernacle getting a portion of people's income is a similar word. In this case, mishpat means people getting their due, whether it's punishment, protection, or care. So one of the things we have to know is justice really means equal punishment, equal provision, and equal protection. And that's why whenever this word is used in the Old Testament, certain classes of people are mentioned repeatedly. Widows, orphans, immigrants, 
and the poor. Why? This is often known as the quartet of the vulnerable. The church that God requires cares about life being made right for everyone. Cares about life being made right for everyone. Now, if we had time, I'd love to go through a few examples of that, even here in Georgia, but we don't have time. But if you go through historically, we're in Black History Month right now, there is no shortage of examples in which people who claim to follow Jesus did not care about life being made right and equitable for everyone. That's justice. Then God says, love kindness. Now, sometimes this word that's translated love kindness or loving kindness is translated mercy, love mercy. The word in the Hebrew there is the word chesed. It it means a loyal love. It's the word that ultimately there is no English word that corresponds to this Hebrew word. So the translators created a whole new word that you'll see in the King James Version of the Bible. And it's the word loving kindness. They made a compound word because they did not have a word in the English language that could correspond to this deep, rich Hebrew word chesed. But loving kindness relays the idea of God's love and mercy regardless of what you've done. This is what God means when he promises to pursue us and to rescue us. The thing about loving kindness or loving love, loyal love, mercy, is you can never escape it. You can't elude unconditional love. This is a love that will never let you go. God says, that we are called to love that kind of kindness and mercy. Why? Well, because we should be so overwhelmed by the mercy that has been shown to us. When we understand how God has continued to pursue us, he pursued us before we ever knew him. He pursued us when we knew him and ran. He pursues us when we know him and hide. He loves us with an incomparable fidelity. So, we are called to love people with the heart of God. This kindness and mercy bestowed to people that goes beyond merit. It goes beyond whether or not they deserve that love. So, what does that mean? We don't show kindness and mercy only to people who prove they deserve it. If you remember in Luke, Jesus said, sinners do that. If we only show kindness to the people that do nice things for us, We're no different than anybody else. But we don't just show kindness to people who prove they deserve it. Why? I don't know about you, but we haven't proven, I haven't proven that, 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 that I deserve that. And yet God is merciful. Now, mercy, this second thing God brought up that in this passage is connected to justice. I don't know if you realize that mercy is connected to justice. It's why they're so often put together in scripture. They are each other's counterparts in so many ways, or, or uh, they're partnered so often throughout Scripture. Now, another word that's translated mercy in the Scriptures is the word rechem. And, and this Arabic counterpart, there's an Arabic counterpart for this word called rakim. It simply means mercy in the same way, but it, but it, but it, it, it says that mercy paints a beautiful picture. In Hebrew, I honestly don't think there's a more beautiful word picture. You see, a lot of your Hebrew characters are characters that are pictures and symbols of other things. So there's art on display when you look at this word in the Hebrew. So here's a quick Hebrew lesson. It won't be boring, I promise. Most Hebrew words consist of three root characters. 
and each letter carries a picture concept that describes the word. Vowels are normally added just to make the words easy to pronounce, but they're not originally there. For example, the word Yahweh or Jehovah is simply Y-H-W-H, and the, the characters conveyed something else. In order to make us ha make it more pr uh, pronounceable, that's a word, we have to add vowels in order to do it. So we add vowels there, Yahweh, or if we transliterate that with the J, Jehovah, those vowels are things that are added in because we have to be able to pronounce it. But the three root letters of the word Rechem, this word mercy, are these words, are these, these characters, Resh, Shet, and Mem. Now that first character, Resh, is the picture of a person, right? The second character, Shet, is, is a picture of a fence, right? It carries this implication of being protected and being surrounded. And that third character is the word mem. It's a picture of water. And this is at the end of the word, which means it's closed. Uh, it, whenever you have a closed mem, it can symbolize something hidden. So you have this closed mem, this closed picture of water that's showing something hidden or protected. And when you put all of these concepts together, do you know what you get? You get a person, you get a protective barrier, and you get water. A person, protective barrier, and water. Do you know what that is a picture of? A womb. As a matter of fact, this word for mercy is the same word used other places for womb. So why would mercy and the womb be so closely intertwined? Well, think about what happens in a womb. It's the place where that little zygote is being fashioned and made to live rightly. The womb provides the, the perfect, ideal environment for growth to occur. The skull can fuse together rightly. Tendons can form, to, uh, form rightly. Sinews can form rightly. The cardiovascular system can form rightly. Nutrients are digested rightly. Muscular development forms rightly. The womb becomes the safest, healthiest environment for life to be knit and made right. And God uses this picture because the implication is that the womb is supposed to be this safe place where life is made right. So when you consider this picture and you overlay that with justice, here is what I would submit to you. Mercy and justice work hand in hand. In the same way that life is made most right in the womb, mercy is the womb in which justice happens. Life is only made right when it is encased and shrouded in mercy and kindness. If you are like me, you are overwhelmed by God's mercy, his act of sending his son to die for you in order to make life right. That idea should move you to want to see other people's lives made right. This is what motivates the church that God requires. This is what it means to be a church that loves mercy. And finally, walk humbly. Quite simply, when you have been overcome by the mercy of God, you understand that you never deserve the mercy of God. It allows you to be humble. It allows you to be in community of other believers that help you continually grow to look like Christ. This means that whenever there are areas that, that uh, don't look like him in you, you accept being challenged. 
When you have the right way of thinking, you don't pat yourself on the back. You know it's only by the grace of God and the mercy of God that you're even on the right track. And when you're challenged with something in your character, in your passions, in your behavior, in your thought process, any of that that doesn't look like Jesus, you don't respond with being defensive. We have said this at this church for years now. True humility is the ability to respond by saying, you know what? I would never put that past me. So how would you pray? You would pray this way, Lord, so far today, I'm doing all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy. I haven't been grumpy. I haven't been nasty. I haven't been selfish. I haven't been self-indulgent. I haven't whined. I haven't cursed. I've not charged uh, things that I shouldn't on my credit card, whatever it is. But I'm about to get out of bed in a few minutes and I'm going to need a lot more help after that. This is what it means for us to get to this place of deep, real humility. This is what it means for us to understand that it's only by God's grace that I'm even able to hold it together so that I don't begin to judge people differently. I don't begin to, you know, many times this is how you know when you're not humble. When you judge other people by their actions, but you judge yourself by your intentions. And so when you think about some of the earlier things earlier in Micah 6, uh, the verses 6 and 7, God points out all their great spiritual disciplines. They were giving and tithing of their resources. That's a great function of worship. Israel did the same thing. They were giving sacrifices. They were giving their, their resources. In the same way that in the New Testament, Jesus calls out the Pharisees for giving and tithing. What did Jesus say? You've neglected the weightier things of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. There's that great requirement again. And this isn't any different from the great commandment that we all know in Deuteronomy 10. And now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. There is no difference between the great commandment and the great requirement of Micah 6 eight. To love God is to do justice. To walk in all his ways is to love kindness. To serve him with all of our heart and soul and mind is to walk humbly. Now, we often try to hide from doing justice and loving kindness through being religious, right? Through kind of being falsely religious. We see injustice in our spheres of influence where we may be able to affect change, albeit ever so slightly. And at best, we'll say, I'll pray for you. But Jesus calls out the Pharisees for this attitude. Why? Well, if we are a, a church that God requires, that means if your lips are willing to move, but your hands and your feet are not, then your prayers are self-serving and are a waste of time. This is how the church that God requires thinks, feels, and acts. This is the hope and the prayer for Icon. Whenever people ask, where are we going? What are we doing? Who are we? What is our identity? What are we going to look like on the other side of this pandemic? This should be the answer. This should be where your heart goes. We are going to go back to doing what we had hoped to do beforehand, to be the church that God objectively requires. We, we may do it imperfectly, but this is going to be what, and hopefully is, what guides our staff, what guides our leaders. This is where any church should start. And over time, mission drift can occur. 
And over the last couple of years, it is very easy for this church and other churches to experience mission drift as we are scrambling to figure out how to love each other well in the midst of this very unprecedented time. And we need to be recalibrated. So let this serve as a recalibration for us. We are going to endeavor, hopefully as we had done before, endeavor to live out these these requirements that God has called us to by living out three of the core values that we started with as a church. And those values are grace, community, and renewal. Grace, community, and renewal. What do we mean by grace? We want to be a church that is rooted in word and worship. Rooted in the very word of God. Everything we do, we want to be informed and undergirding or undergirded by the scriptures. We don't want to make up truth as we go. We don't want to just kind of adjust and make up new things based on what's happening. We want to apply the heart of God and the word of God well. And so the word of God, vitally important in what it means to learn about the grace of God, to share the grace of God, to be corrected by the grace of God, to find comfort in the grace of God. That's got to be rooted in God's word. And worship, what it means for us to make much of who Jesus is. What does it mean for us to worship both in word and in the, in, the, in the proclamation of the word and also corporate worship, singing the word of God. We love to say we want to sing the word of God to each other and back to God. And so grace, the way we experience grace when we are gathered is through word and worship. The second value that we want to live out in trying to keep the great requirement is community. And we believe that we experience community uh, both in celebration and conversation. Celebration, there are many things we can celebrate about, uh, things that are, are God's uh, image that are on display in all of us. Some things are expressly you know, theological. Some things are just living life, celebrating good things, enjoying each other, enjoying time together, enjoying good food, enjoying good entertainment. Any of those things we get together and we celebrate. But we need to be careful that we're not exclusively just celebrators. We also need to have courageous conversations. There may be things I'm celebrating that God doesn't, which means in community, a good celebration, a good conversation can be had. That's why some of our small groups and our book studies and our missional community groups hopefully lead us to a place of humility where we can genuinely walk more humbly because of the community into which we've been grafted. And then finally, renewal. What does it mean to be a church that cares about justice and mercy? What does it mean to look at all the ways in which our community does not look like the kingdom that's coming? And then we use our time, our talent, our treasure, our heart, our prayers, our passions to start being more of that foretaste, to be that trailer, to be that coming attraction. If there are places where life is not being lived well, we want to be a part of that. So we have teams at this church when we start figuring out what types of endeavors do we want to support? What type of issues in our community do we want to give our money to, our time to, our people to? What things globally do we want to, do we want to be a part of that are developmental and bringing real renewal well? I believe these are worthy principles to which we should subscribe because it's the only way that God cultivates a, a countercultural uh, world and cultivates countercultural disciples 
that are willing and able to bear their crosses. Suffering at all costs, intentionally choosing discomfort and suffering for the sake of the kingdom. This is what Micah 6 means. This is what it means for us to be this church that God requires, God's people being exhorted to be willing to live lives that are radically different from the rest of the world. This is what we consider when choosing a church. This is what we consider when planting a church. This is what we consider when leading a church. We don't choose a church based on what we prefer, but based on what God requires. Icon, where are we going? Who will, who will we be? We are being called to serve as God's witness in the world. This can't happen. It, it won't happen if we are more loyal to the norms and the laws of this nation than we are to the mandates of our God. And so as we wrap this series up and we think through all the ways that God has built the church, all the things that God has done in the church, all the ways that God comforts us, even when there's pain and suffering in the church, it does not negate the objective call that God has for all of us as the church to do what he has required, to love justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. We hope to live that out in our values. We hope to this next in 2022 and, and beyond. We hope that our core values enable you to live that out and manifest that well. Because ultimately, we just don't want to be a church that's fun or a church that's exciting or even a church that's exclusively comforting. We want to be a church that pleases God, that does what he is required not because it's a checklist item that makes us feel like we have uh, satisfied some kind of brownie point list, but because ultimately, if this is what God requires, then this is what it means to make much of him. And this will be the primary way that he draws others to himself and the primary way by which we become changed ever, ever often more and more and more changed into the very image of God, the more perfect image of God. We will look more like him. We will love more like him. We will lead more like him. So let's be that church that God requires grace, community renewal. That's something we're going to keep leaning into as we endeavor to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for this series that we've been through. Thank you for teaching us and showing us and even correcting us all the ways that maybe we have gotten the church wrong, all the ways we may have looked at the purpose purposes wrong, all the ways that either a we have felt like we're not allowed to admit or call out ways that we have been hurt by church abuse and abuse of power or all the ways that we have taken some of the horrific ways the church has behaved as an excuse to ignore your objective call still for the church. God, I pray that you would give us comfort where we need it. Give us correction where we need it. Lord, recalibrate us now as we move into this new season. And let us do it with joy, fervor, cautious optimism, but ultimately a deep trust that you're building this. We are not. We are on for the ride. We don't have a mission. Your mission has a church. Let us be the church that you require in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, receive, beloved, this final blessing, this benediction from God, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, wherever you are, amen and amen. God bless you.